We're going to be going to John chapter 20 here in just a moment to look at that resurrection account. If you'd like to turn there with me, it'll be John chapter 20 here in uh, just a moment. And by the way, God has blessed us with great music and great musical talent, and that definitely shows today. We have another choir anthem after the sermon in a couple hours, and so um, seeing if you're awake, and or maybe you think I'm kidding. Anyways, so um, I'm just looking forward to it. Wonderful choir anthems today, wonderful music, and that is by far one of my favorite hymns, In Christ Alone Our Hope Is Found. And I hope as you sing those, those words of In Christ Alone or whatever, whatever hymn, whatever song we're singing, I hope that you um, take note. Hi, Cody. Okay, you're giving a kiss. Bye to Pam. Okay. Anyways, I hope you uh, take note of the words that we're singing because we're singing those words to the Lord. We're singing those words to the Lord. So now we get to John chapter 20 here in just a moment, but let's think about joy. And let's think, as we think about joy, I would like to make you think about children in joy. You know, Think of the joy that we might see in a child, of something that we might think of normal and everyday. We might think of just dull or whatever it may be. But we see joy in a child or joy in a toddler, joy in a baby. A number of years ago, I was cutting the grass at my last house. And I lived on about an acre at my last house. And so I'm cutting the grass. I'm on my riding mower, my riding mower, Cub Cadet. And it's a beautiful day. It's a sunny day. It's kind of warm outside, just a nice day. And as I'm cutting, I see Mercedes, who's now seven and a half or so, and then was, I think, almost three years old. And I just see her come out with this huge smile on her face, jump on her little tricycle or whatever she had out there. And in excitement, she just started pedaling as fast as she could. And she was is excited pedaling on the driveway. Now that was okay. We lived a little bit off the road, but her mother, I didn't, I didn't see Megan come out. I just saw Mercedes come out and she was just joyful. She was excited. But as I watched, I thought, well, Megan's probably going to come out in a minute because there's no way that Megan's going to leave her out, let her come out by herself while I'm cutting the grass. And uh, Megan actually did not come out. So I got off the mower and I go inside and said, Megan, Mercedes snuck out, and she did, and we took care of that. But um, it's not that she wasn't paying attention. Mercedes is a very good escape artist. But what I want to point out is the joy in a child. Mercedes had great joy to come out in the sunshine and get on her tricycle and ride, and there was just this big smile on her face. She was just so excited. Mercedes loved to play outside then, and she still does. Things that we may not even notice or, or think much of, a child can have great joy in. And we share. You know, when we have joy in something, we have excitement in something, we share that with someone else. You know, as my children get older, I see that joy more and more. I see that excitement more and more. For almost eight years, I've seen that. And now they're getting to the point where they certainly know the true meaning of Christmas and the true meaning of Resurrection Sunday. I like the term Resurrection Sunday better than Easter. And they know the true meaning, but uh, they also know that uh, they usually get at least a few gifts on Christmas. And a few years ago, it was Christmas, and the night before Christmas, Megan and I put out the gifts around the tree. Not a lot, just a few. And Mercedes, being an early riser, uh, got up early and got out there, and we heard this shrieking uh, sound where she said, Presents! And she was excited, and there was joy. And you share that joy with somebody else. We share joy. And so let me ask, do we have excitement in the Lord? Do we have joy in the Lord? 
You know, the, we're going to read about it here in just a moment. But the early disciples, they were in grief. They were mourning. They, they were definitely in grief. And they go to the tomb. And they found it empty. What a surprise. And as you look through the different gospel accounts, we see an emphasis, go and tell. Mary is going to tell somebody else. Who's going to tell somebody else. Who's going to tell someone else. Who goes to tell everyone else. They had joy. They were excited because their Messiah, their Savior, their Lord has risen from the grave. Do we have joy in the Lord? Do we have excitement in the Lord? Do we share that? We're going to read from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. So if you're there, uh, you can turn there in a Bible you brought with you or a pew Bible or even a smartphone or a tablet. That's okay, too. If you have a Bible app, certainly turn there and read along. We're going to walk through this passage. I'm also going to have it on the screen today. John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. So let me read this passage. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw... But the stone had been removed from the entrance. This one-ton stone that might have actually been square had been removed from the tomb entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb First, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in the tomb, did not go inside, stayed outside. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, straight in the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as a cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in his place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. He saw and believed. Still, they did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. We're going to stop right there today and talk about it for a few minutes. But we celebrate. We rejoice and we worship God. We celebrate that Christ arose. What significance is that? What significance is it that we serve a risen Savior? What's the point? What's it matter? In the next few minutes, I want to explain the resurrection and the significance of the resurrection. I want to start by just briefly walking through this passage, John chapter 20, just this one. And there's three other resurrection accounts for sure. And, and then there's more in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection as well. But I just want to walk through this account. And then I want to talk about the significance of the resurrection, the applications of the resurrection. And then in a couple hours, we'll come back to the choir anthem. So let's come and talk about this. What we see right here in verses 1 through 10, even verses 1 through 20 here in John chapter 20, we see the Easter rush. We see the resurrection rush. We see the great foot race. We see the first marathon. I don't know that it was 26.2 miles, but everybody's running. If you read through this, and again, just notice, and if you're a runner, take great joy. Everybody's, run, everybody's running, running from here to there, you know, outrunning each other to get to the tomb. This is the Easter rush. And so think about Christmas shopping and the rush of Christmas shopping versus the Easter resurrection rush. For the last 20 years or so, the Christmas rush has been a bigger and bigger deal. 
a bigger and bigger deal. Stores are opening earlier and earlier the day after Thanksgiving. Now, certainly they're even opening Thanksgiving evening. Everybody wants to get out and go shopping for Christmas. It's the Easter, it's the Christmas rush. I realized this when I was a McDonald's manager. While I was in college, I worked as a McDonald's manager. It was my tribulation period, and I worked there for five years. And Jesus hasn't come back yet, so we know it's post-trib, but that's a side note. Anyways, I worked as McDonald's manager, and I was working at a new store, a new McDonald's restaurant. It was in a high commercial area, and they had never been open the day after Christmas in that location before. We didn't know how busy they were going to be. So the day after Thanksgiving comes, I go to work at something like 4 a.m. before God is even awake, and, um, but shoppers are up. And I go to work, and about 6.30 in the morning, this Christmas rush begins. They just slammed us. All morning long, we were just slammed because it's a Christmas rush. It went on to 11 a.m. But before the Christmas rush, there was a resurrection rush. Before there was ever a Christmas rush, we see right here the Easter resurrection rush. Jesus has been crucified. The disciples are in mourning, but they do not realize that Jesus cannot be kept down. They're all in mourning. They're all in grief, but they do not realize that the tomb could not contain Jesus. He would not be kept down. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb to see Jesus. She was the first to the tomb, and she sees the stone was already rolled away. In another one of the gospel accounts, I think it's Luke, if I recollect, she's going to the tomb wondering who's going to... Re- remove the stone who's going to move the stone and and maybe she thought the soldiers would move the stone but she gets to the tomb and the stone's already moved the stone's already out of the way mary did the logical thing she goes to peter and john this is likely john it says a disciple whom jesus loved usually it's john we believe she runs to peter and john and she's in a hurry she's winning some running races there and do you think that peter and john would have believed her You know, we would hope so, but Jesus likely exercised seven demons out of her in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. She could easily say, I saw the tomb empty, and they may saw you, so you saw something. Come on, Mary, let's take you home. Either way, they go to run for themselves. They want to check this out. They want to see what's going on. So Peter and John run to the tomb, but John ran faster. He was likely younger. They get to the tomb and they see the tomb empty. John saw and believed. Verse 9. They had not understood the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. They did not understand that yet from the scripture. Notice, Mary was the first to the tomb and the last to leave. If you look at verse 11. She was the last to leave. She was very devoted. She was very faithful. We can learn from Mary. We can learn devotion from Mary. We can learn faithfulness from Mary. This Easter rush preceded any Christmas rush. The Easter rush was a big deal because our Savior lives. Our Savior lives. No one can keep Jesus down. He had been, he has been resurrected. So the disciples learned the same thing we learn, which is that our Savior lives. What is the significance of of the resurrection. As I make each of these statements, I would like you to respond with our Savior lives. So now it's time for you to be involved in this message. I'm going to make a statement, 
And most of the statements actually have a scripture attached to it. And then I'll put on the screen, response, our Savior lives. And that's for you to respond with our Savior lives. But as we think about the significance of the resurrection, we can see many different scriptures throughout the New Testament and many different themes that you can pull throughout the New Testament that tell the great significance of the resurrection. So let's start. We can have a relationship with Jesus because he lives. If he was not resurrected, we would not have a relationship with him. You cannot have a relationship with a dead person. But you can have a relationship with Jesus because he lives. Response? Our Savior lives. Good job. Our Savior lives. Next one. More about the significance. Christ is our Savior who cannot die again. He cannot die again. And we know the scriptures teach this. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Romans 8, 9. Our Savior lives. Good. Next point. Because of the resurrection, we have new birth. We have the scripture here. According to his great mercy, God the Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1.3. We have new birth. Response? Our Savior Next one. We have forgiveness of sins because of the resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. But we have forgiveness of sins because of the resurrection. Response? Amen. Because Jesus is raised, we have no condemnation. None. Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Because he lives, he is actually interceding for us at the right hand of God the Father. There is no condemnation. Response? Next one. Because of the resurrection, we have the Lord's personal fellowship and protection. Isn't that awesome? We have the Lord's personal fellowship and protection. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verse 20. He's with us always. Let's try our response. We should make this a competition, this side versus this side. We got a few more. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we know that we will also be raised from the dead. Think about that. We will also be raised from the dead. Scriptures, we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. He has the first fruits of the resurrection. We will also be raised from the dead. And we see those scripture references for that. 2 Corinthians 4.14 and Romans 6.4, Romans 8.11. 1 Corinthians 6.14 and 15.20. Response? Doing good. Because of the... Re- well, here we go. This one starts different. If Jesus was not resurrected, there would never be a Christianity. Response? There would never be a Christianity. Why? Look at this. The Romans would have shown the grave and it would be over. 
They would show the grave and it would be over. Response? By the way, just a little extra comment about that one. Chuck Colson, you know, he was Nixon's hatchet man and went to jail for the Watergate scandal. And after going through a scandal like that, he said, if the Christian, if this, if this Christianity stuff was all made up, it would have leaked out. It would never have been, it, w- it would have got out that it was just a fake. You know, certainly they could show the grave and it would be over. Nixon, uh, Colson, knowing how nothing stayed contained with that Watergate scandal, knew that nothing could really stay contained either. Our Savior lives. The Romans could have shown the grave and it would be over. Jesus' resurrection shows the grave could not contain him. The grave could not contain him. Our Savior lives. lives. Jesus' resurrection shows that he is the victor. Jesus' resurrection shows again, the miracles are true. Jesus is a power and authority over all nature. Jesus has a power and authority over all nature. It's not hard to figure out. He can break out because he wasn't forced in. He was not forced into the tomb. He lets himself be harassed and blackballed and scorned and shoved around and killed. He went willingly to the cross. Everything's true there. Response? Our Savior No one could keep Jesus down because no one ever knocked him down. He lay down when he was ready. Response? Our Savior And all God's people responded with? Amen. 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 The resurrection is of the utmost importance in the Christian life. The utmost importance in the Christian life. For all the statements I've already said and then some. The resurrection gives us hope. We have eternal hope. But we can also have a relationship with Jesus because of the resurrection. Dr. Tennant, the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, said the following. Buddhists traveled to the remains of Buddha. Muslims traveled to Medina for the remains of Muhammad. Though he told them not to, they still do. But there is no place in the world you can travel to worship the remains of Christ. There is no place in the world you can travel to worship the remains of Christ. We cannot do that because Jesus arose and he ascended to heaven. The Bible also says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. This means that we, if we trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior, will also have a future perfect and eternal body with Christ in his kingdom. When we have a family member, a friend, a loved one die, when they are in Christ, it's not so long. It's see you later. We'll see them again. We have hope eternal for our loved ones that go on before us because of the resurrection. Because they too live again and will live again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, the scriptures write about Jesus appearing to the disciples and later over 500 people all at the same time. Jesus showed many that he had been resurrected. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 15, the scriptures tell us that if Christ was not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. This means that our faith is useless. Later on in that same chapter, the scriptures write about our hope in the resurrection. Because Christ rose from the dead, we have hope. We know that when we die, it's not the end. We have hope, eternal. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, Where, O death, is your sting? The sting in death is gone. Because 
our Savior lives. I want to read the words to one of my favorite resurrection hymns, Because He Lives. I just want to read the words. We're not going to sing them because you wouldn't want me to sing them for you. And also, because I want you to focus on these words. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. The empty grave is there and it proves our Savior lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds a future, and life is worth the living just because he lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives, but greater still the calm assurance. This child can face uncertain days because he lives. Life is not worthless because he lives. We go to heaven straight to be with him. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he knows he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. And then one day, I'll cross the river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory and I'll know he lives. We go to paradise and we know he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds a future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. When I was a child on Christmas and my birthday and in e on Resurrection Sunday, I would, I would receive gifts, probably too many, uh, definitely too many. And on Christmas and Easter, we would go to my grandparents' house in the afternoon and we wanted to share about what we got for Christmas or what was in our Easter baskets. We wanted to tell what, what we were given. After my birthday, I could not wait to tell my friends about the new bike I got or whatever I was given for my birthday because it was exciting. You tell. When we have joy, we share it. When we have joy, we share it. Joy is a gift that keeps on giving if we allow it to. Jesus has risen. Share that with someone. Have joy. Have excitement. He lives. But do you believe it? Many of you are here, and maybe most of you, maybe all of you, and you would say, yes, I believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. I believe that Jesus is our risen Savior. I've accepted him for eternal life. And, 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 and many of you are even committed to him. Many of you are here, and you believe it, but... You're not committed to it. And in that way, we have an illogical faith, an irrational faith. We believe in Jesus, and we maybe, we maybe even believe what the Bible says about him, but when it comes to following him, no, we won't do that. It's irrational, it's illogical, it's unreasonable, because it's a contradiction to what we're even believing. It's a contradiction to the scriptures. Some of you are there. Maybe some of us are all there at some points in our life. Others of you, you don't believe in Jesus. You're here, and I'm glad to have you here, and I would welcome you any Sunday, and I'd love to talk even further about this. But maybe you don't believe Jesus is Lord and Savior or the Messiah, the Anointed One, or the one who died for our sins. You don't believe, but you've really never studied it. You don't believe because you don't want to believe. 
because you don't want to be under anyone's authority or anything like that. And if you're in that camp, because there's at least three camps here, if you're in that camp, I would encourage you to study it. There's a startling study I heard last week. Ten out of ten people die. I'll let you think about it for a minute. If my statistics are wrong, please correct me. We're all going to die at some point. We're all going to die. I encourage you, if you're here, and I would love to walk through it with you. I would love to get a book like More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. He was an outspoken, militant atheist and studied all the different religions of the world and became a Christian. I would love to walk through that book with you. I would love to get a book like Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, who is also a militant atheist. I would love to walk through that book with you. And also, of course, first and foremost, the Bible. I would love to listen to your concerns, your doubts, and talk about them with you. But I'm sure that some of you don't want that because then you have no excuse. But I want to tell all of you, all of us are without excuse when it comes to dying and standing before God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that through general revelation, general revelation, God has given us enough to know that there is a God and we are sinners in need of a Savior. And then you're here and you're hearing the gospel. And you'll stand before God and you'll say, well, nobody ever told me. And God will say, yeah, you know, a thousand times you heard and you rejected. So I want to encourage you and challenge you right now to reflect on where you're at with God. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you know him? Do you believe in him? The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Who would dispute that? All of us. And we all fall short of the glory of God because God's standard is perfection. Now, I know that many of you, you're thinking, I'm not a bad person. I'm a pretty good person. But you're comparing yourself with the wrong people. We need to compare ourselves with God, not with our neighbors. Any of us can pick a dozen other people to compare ourselves to and think we're pretty good. We need to compare ourselves with God, and God is perfect. He is righteous. His standard is total, complete righteousness. And one sin separates us from Him. It's been described as taking a glass of water and putting one drop of cyanide in it. That one drop of cyanide ruins the water. Ruins the water. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. The Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by him. John 14.6. The Bible teaches that sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59.2. Sin creates a, a, a major separation, a gulf between us and God. The Bible says that God will not let the guilty go unpunished. That's 2 Thessalonians 1.8-9. Yet, the Bible teaches that God loves the people of the world. John 3.16. Now, that's quite a dilemma. Because if you've been listening, we've said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've said that God will not let the guilty go unpunished. That We've said all this stuff. Yet, God loves the people of the world. That's a dilemma. God can't tell a lie or he wouldn't be God. Numbers 23.19. God doesn't change his mind. 1 Samuel 15.29. That is why God sent Jesus. That is why this matters. That is why Jesus went to the cross. The guilty will be punished. And Jesus took our punishment on the cross. Jesus substituted himself in our place, in my, my place, in your place. And he substituted himself on the cross. So that if you imagine standing at the foot of the cross, imagine your, sinning, your sins going to Jesus. He took the wrath of God in our place. That was God's answer to our problem.
We had a problem. We have a problem. God solved it. We are called to respond and believe. The Bible can be summed up with four verbs. Not the Bible, I'm sorry. Our commitment to Christ, four verbs. They are confess, believe, trust, commit. Confess, believe, trust, commit. God calls us to confess that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Repent. Sometimes that's the hardest part because we have to admit that we've messed up. The Bible calls us to believe in Jesus as the only Savior. Believe, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will inherit everlasting life. Confess, believe. We've got to trust and commit. Jesus gives us a free gift of salvation, but he does call us to commit. Are you committed to Christ? Some of you are believers, but you're not committed. Jesus does call us to make him Lord of our life. Luke 9, 23, he says, anyone can follow me. It's a totally free gift. Anyone can follow me. But he or she must deny his or herself, take up his or her cross and follow. I've heard it described as fans or followers. Are you a fan of Christ or are you a follower of Christ? There are many fans of Christ that denied him through the ages. Even right there, look at John chapter 6 later. Read the chapter. Around verse 60, Jesus had preached to some 5,000 people and all of them left. They, they were called disciples, but they left. They left because they were fans. They weren't followers. The disciples stayed with Jesus. Jesus looked at the disciples. He said, are you going to leave too? Peter said, no. Where are we going to go? The disciples stayed. Where are you at? Are you a fan of Christ? Are you a follower of Christ? Are you a doubter? And if you're a doubter, what are you doing about it? What are you doing? We're all going to die someday. Study. Open the Bible. Open some other books. Books on world religions. Books on apologetics. Many times if we're doubters, but we come from a Judeo-Christian worldview, like if you grow up in the United States, what you do is you study all the religions of the world, but you're skewing them against Christianity because you think you already know Christianity. I guarantee you, you don't. Just because you grow up in America does not mean you know Christianity. So you study them, but you, don't, you ignore Christianity. I would love to study them with you. But accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Trust in him. Commit to him. I believe right now the Holy Spirit is convicting some of you to commit to Christ as Lord and Savior. I believe that. But we have this war going on within us between the Holy Spirit and within what the Bible calls the flesh, our sin nature. So I encourage you to surrender, surrender to Christ right now. I'm going to give a closing prayer, and I'm going to give an opportunity for you to surrender and commit to Christ as Lord and Savior. You're never saved by a prayer. You're saved by what's in your heart. But if you'd like to commit to Christ, I encourage you to tell him in this prayer. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I know right now that the Holy Spirit is convicting some here to commit to you as Lord and Savior. Right now. And I would ask with Holy Spirit that you would convict them strongly, so strong that they will surrender to you. Lord God, I know that right now some have been Christians, but they've fallen away. They've backslidden. They're not following you. And Holy Spirit, I'd ask that you would convict them to turn their life back over to you right now. And they would respond. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you'd like to surrender to Jesus right now, please tell him that in a simple prayer like this.
Again, you're not saved by the prayer. You're saved by what's in your heart. But tell him that in a simple prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I recognize that I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I recognize that my sin separates me from you. I believe in you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I'm accepting your free gift of forgiveness. I'm trusting in you as Lord and Savior, and I'm committing to you. I'm committing my life to you. Help me to live for you. Lord God, I ask that you help us all living for you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you say that prayer, please share it with somebody today. It's cause for rejoicing and celebration. The Bible says all heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. If you have questions about God or the spiritual life, I would love to talk with you. Even if you're an atheist, agnostic, deist, a Buddhist, and I don't care. I would love to talk to you and just meet with you for weeks, every week, to talk about these things. I'd love to talk to you. Seek me out. I want to invite the choir for the closing anthem.